0: Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service which is already underway and listen to the message.
1: I need about three or four minutes to say this. It's not part of the sermon, but I feel uh, compelled. The world in which your Bible was written was littered with racism and violence and hatred and oppression. And nowhere was the ethnic tension more apparent than in the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. In the mind of a first century Jew, Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. When a Jew referred to a Gentile as uncircumcised, they spit on the ground. It was a name of profound contempt. If a Jewish person married a Gentile, that little Jewish family held a funeral service for their child. In their eyes, their child was dead. And on the other side, the Gentiles regarded the Jewish people to be subhuman. And that's why, historically speaking, the Jews have always been an oppressed people. In all of human history, brothers and sisters... There has never been so much animosity and hatred and violence between two groups of people as there was between the Jew and the Gentile. But in the first century, there arose a different kind of a group of people. They rose above all that hostility and hatred. They didn't see themselves as different, first of all. They saw themselves as members of the same family. They were made up of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, rich and poor, male and female. Those were your early brothers and sisters in the apostolic church. And the Roman world stood in awe as they saw people they knew had hated each other, begin to love each other and do life together in the name of Jesus. They saw them walking into the marketplace arm in arm. They saw them singing together, worshiping together. They saw them praying together. They saw them eating and working and greeting each other. They saw them taking care of each other and marrying each other and burying one another. And that one fact blew the minds of everyone in the first century in the Roman Empire. One of their writers said, Behold how they love one another. This church that you're part of, in its beginning and yet today, it is a classless society. We do not regard social status, color, ethnicity, or position. In fact, for the first 200 years of church history, The Christians didn't use last names. I know you thought they didn't have last names. They did. But they didn't use last names for 200 years because your last name indicated your social position. And the church decided we don't need that. And so this classless, raceless society where all distinctions were erased became the church. (laughs) It was amazing. And Paul refers to it over and over. I wrote the scripture down. There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, scythian, bond or free, but Jesus Christ is all and he's in all. That's us. We did this first. How in the world could such a remarkable change take place? Only this way. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. On the day of Pentecost, God did something miraculous. He reversed the curse that had plagued humanity since the Tower of Babel. But He did not make all the Christians speak the same language one more time. He did something better. He made them all speak the same heavenly language. That's what God did. Now, I know we teach and we preach and we should and we will that on the day of Pentecost, God allowed people to speak languages they'd never learned. That's absolute fact. But He did something else. He helped people love people they'd never loved. That's Pentecost. That's you. That's this. Thank you for setting the stage for end-time revival with unity. Thank you for being one heart, one mind, one body. Thank you for being a united church. Thank you for being a church that sees Jesus as preeminent and predominant. My hat is off to you. Pentecost did not overcome diversity. We need diversity. Pentecost overcame disunity. That's what Pentecost did. That's amazing. And that's not the sermon. So we better get started or we'll be here all night. Thanks to everyone who allowed me, these great pastors and leaders that have pulled this together and uh, you're following their vision and their lead, and I thank you for that. It's such an honor to be here. The fourth book of your Bible... It's called the book of Numbers because it contains not one but two numberings of the children of Israel. But it's also referred to by scholars as the book of the wilderness in the Old Testament because the children of Israel are wandering through the desert for 40 years due to their own rebellion. They are in the middle of a long and difficult journey and now this long and difficult journey has become even longer and even more difficult because the Edomites have decided they won't let Israel enter their territory. And so they have to take the long way around. And the Bible simply says they are journeying from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea. And the Bible says in Numbers chapter 21 that they are much discouraged because of the way. And we feel sorry for them when we see that. They're much discouraged. But that phrase there in the Hebrew language literally means they are impatient because of the way. And they begin to murmur against God and they begin to murmur against Moses. And let me just say that heaven doesn't see a distinction between the two. Murmuring against your spiritual leadership is the same as murmuring against God in heaven's view. And Israel complains about everything and it's quite astounding. Why, Moses, did you bring us up out of Egypt. We're just going to die here in the wilderness. Can you imagine complaining about your life after you've been set free from 430 years of bondage in Egypt? And yet they do. It's astounding. It must frustrate God sometimes that people who've been set free from so much can complain about so little. But that's what Israel did. Why did you bring us up out of here? We're just going to die. Back in Egypt, we were slaves, but at least we knew where our next meal was coming from. Out here in the desert, Moses, we have no bread and we have no water. Now, that's a lie. They do have bread, God sends it every morning. It's called manna. It's the easiest thing in the world. You open your tent flap, you walk out, and there's bread to eat laying on the ground like the dew. It's the easiest thing in the world. But isn't it amazing when we get a little frustrated or we get a little uh, kind of put aside by our problems, it's so easy to complain in the face of the blessings of God. They had everything they needed. They just didn't have everything they wanted. That's when we complain, when we don't have everything we want. They have bread, they have manna. Now, I understand manna in the Hebrew language literally means, what is it? So they don't like the same menu every day. Manna was what they said the first morning they walked out. What is it? Now, I've been to a number of church potlucks in my life. And I've had manna before. A time or two. I've also been married for um, 36 years, and I am sure Beverly's made that dish a couple of times. And she's not here to defend herself. They do have bread, and they do have water. Do you realize that later the Scripture refer to a rock that followed them and say, and that rock was Christ. Now, I know theologians debate over just about anything they can find to debate over, but here's what I believe. God supernaturally provided a rock with a spring of water. They traveled miles, and they'd wake up the next morning, and there's that rock. So it's wrong to say we don't have any bread and we don't have any water, but they're just discouraged because of the way. They're unthankful. That makes them complain and criticize, and God is not happy about that. And so God sends a plague of fiery serpents among the people. We're not sure whether the word fiery refers to their color or to the pain of their bite or to both. But many people are dying in Israel. Now, of course, they want Pastor Moses to pray for them. And that's when Moses is given these instructions by God. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass, that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, he shall live. Brother Ellis, pass me that, would you? God told Moses, I want you to take some brass, and I want you to beat a serpent. In the likeness of the serpent, that is causing all the problem in Israel, I want you to put that serpent on a pole. And I want you to lift that pole up so the camp of Israel can see it. And all they need to do is look upon that brazen serpent and they'll live. Just look and you'll live. Now that's not the first time we see the snake and the stick in the Scripture. God told Adam and Eve they could eat of every tree except for one in the Garden of Eden. But you know what they did, because any of you that have had children, you know exactly what children do. And they went exactly over to that tree that God had said you should not eat from, and they partook. The serpent whispered in Eve's ear and tempted her to eat of that one tree, to disobey that one directive. And so she partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The devil has not come up with a more original plan since then. He's still telling people the very same thing. You can do what you want. You can make your own decision. You can usurp the role of God in your life. You are smarter than God. And God's just kind of fictional. And you can become your own God. He's still telling the same lie today. And that's the moment when God cursed the serpent and made an announcement of prophecy. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, all out war, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Devil, you're going to get a fatal head wound. I know you will cause pain to the Messiah. I know you will bruise His heel. It will be inconvenient. It will be painful. It will be a setback. It will hurt. But there's a wound coming to you that is far greater because He's going to bruise your head. He is going to undo your authority. He is going to mess up your kingdom. He is going to take you down. I pause to say to every apostolic lady in this room, the war between the woman and the serpent is the oldest battle in the Bible. The devil hates godly women who raise up the next generation of children to know Jesus and to love Him and to serve Him and to pray to Him. And the devil hates women. And so ladies, I know our society abuses you and misuses you. They're engaged in the oldest battle in the Bible. Don't you feel inferior? Back down, back up, or shut up. You need to stand your ground because when an apostolic woman goes... To prayer, she's engaging in this warfare. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. We just hit something there. I know you felt it. I like every mother and grandmother, every lady in this room, lift up your hands and that beautiful feminine voice and just pray over your family for a minute. Arroboco <laughs> saba. I thank God for our men. It's God's will that men pray everywhere. But I thank God for our ladies. You can concur with Scripture and call them the weaker vessel. That doesn't disgrace them. That honors them. They're precious and rare. But an apostolic woman is powerful. When she wades into intercession, the devil backs up. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry, that's not part of the sermon. Oh. Oh my. So that's a powerful story too. The oldest battle in the Bible. The snake and the tree. The snake and the stick. That's not the last time we see the snake and the stick in Scripture. After Israel's been in bondage for 400 years, God tells Moses, you go to Pharaoh, you tell him, God says, let my people go, that they may worship me. And even in the Egyptian court, we see the snake and the stick. Look at this, Exodus 4. And Moses answered and said, God, they're not going to believe me. They won't hearken to my voice. They'll say, Jehovah hasn't appeared unto Moses. You're delusional, Moses. And Jehovah said, well, Moses, what's that in your hand? He said, well, that's just a stick, God. That's just a rod. And he said, I want you to cast it on the ground. And so he did, and it became a serpent. And the Bible says, Moses fled from before it. And Jehovah said to Moses, put forth your hand, and I want you to take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and laid hold of it, and it became a rod again in his hand. Now Moses did not run from that because he was afraid of snakes. He lived in the desert. There were snakes everywhere. You might run because you're afraid of snakes. Moses grew up in the desert. There's snakes everywhere. I'll tell you why he ran. Because from the opening chapters of the Word of God, the snake, the serpent, was a symbol of evil. It has been since the book of Genesis, and it will be all the way to the book of Revelation. Now you think about the crown. If you've seen a picture of the death mask of young King Tut of ancient Egypt, you know this, that the pharaohs wore a crown that had a coiled serpent right in the middle of their forehead. Egypt was literally the serpent kingdom. One of their earliest goddesses was the serpent goddess Wadjet. And so in that throne room, something was happening. It was the battle between the snake and the stick. One more time. You know the story, Pharaoh begrudgingly let them go and they left and then he changed his mind and he chases Israel to the border of the Red Sea. And it's at the Red Sea where the snake and the stick have a little conflict one more time. And God says to Moses, I want you to lift up that rod over the Red Sea. And God made a way where there was no way, opened a door where there was no door, gave deliverance where there was no deliverance, and the snake king and all of his army, they drowned in the Red Sea. And that tension, that battle, that awkward relationship between the snake and the stick, it runs through your Bible all the way to the end. Paul even frets about the Corinthian church. He said, I'm worried that as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, I'm, I'm worried, I'm concerned that your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. you got to watch out for the serpent. you got to watch out for the evil one. But Jesus gave us. He gave all of his disciples the solution to every one of the serpents' attacks. Every single one. Luke 10, verse 19. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Hmm. A little skill testing question. Now this is a very intelligent audience, I can tell. So you will pass this question with flying colors. I want you to look down toward the floor and I'd like you to verify something for me. If you can verify that you have feet on the end of your legs, would you raise a hand? Okay. Now I know in Pentecost, we never get a hundred percent, hundred percent. I know he wouldn't, but stand up here. Jesus could stand here and say, how many are breathing tonight? He wouldn't get a hundred percent. I know he wouldn't, but <laughs> let, let me show you something. If you are part of Jesus' body and the devil is under his feet, then that puts the devil in a certain place with regard to you. We give the devil far too much leeway and credit, far too much jurisdiction and influence. The devil is not here compared to you. He's not here compared to you. He's there compared to you. If you are part of the body of Christ... The devil is under your feet. You don't have to take everything he has designed for your family. You don't have to take everything he's trying to put on your children or your grandchildren. You have a right to square your shoulders, lock your feet, look him in the eye, and rebuke him in the name of Jesus. He is under your feet. Oh, oh no, Pastor Raymond. That's, that's just too much. You're, you're stretching the point. No, I'm not. Paul said this in Romans 16, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan, not under Jesus' feet, under your feet shortly. Calvary was the first time the devil got his head bruised. It wasn't the last time. Every time God's people get together in a venue like this, in an atmosphere like this, and we take authority that has been given to us in the name of Jesus, the devil is darting in between the pews trying to stay out of the way. (laughs) Two times. In the very last book of your Bible, the enemy is referred to as, quote, the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. Now that's pretty fierce. Two times. The dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. He sounds like a fierce foe. And he is. But you please note that the first time we see the devil in the book of Revelation, he's being cast out of heaven. And the second time we see him in the book of Revelation, he's being bound with a great chain and thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. (laughs) I don't know this. I like to imagine this. I don't even know that angels come in different sizes. But if they do, I just imagine that God sends out like the shortest, most scrawny, weakling-looking little angel to do that job. Because it's not the strength of the angel that's going to bind the devil for a thousand years. It's the authority of the name of Jesus that's going to bind the devil. Tonight, we're not at that point in history yet. But let me tell you, it's still the authority of the name of Jesus that binds every one of the devil's attacks over you. So every time you see him in the book of Revelation... He's being cast out, cast down. It's wonderful. And so, when the devil comes knocking at your door trying to mess you up, you need to remind him that his eternal destiny is the lake of fire and your eternal destiny is the new Jerusalem. You need to remind him that he is going down and you are going up. Somebody said when the devil reminds you of your past, you just need to remind him of his future. The devil's defeated. And this tension, this odd relationship between the snake and the stick, it goes all the way through the pages of Scripture. But nowhere is it expressed more powerfully than in a nighttime conversation between Jesus and a sincere religious leader named Nicodemus. And he talks to this sincere religious man all about being born again of the water and the Spirit. Which lets me know that no matter how sincere or religious anybody is, they still need to be born again of the water and the Spirit. If Jesus said that, we're not out of line to say that. And Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about being born again leads to the most familiar verse in your Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We for, we're familiar with that. We put that on little plaques and fridge magnets, and we, we know that one. But just before the most familiar verse in your Bible, Jesus reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. He reaches all the way back to that strange event that happened to the children of Israel during their wilderness wandering. And he refers one more time to that odd relationship between the snake and the stick. When God told Moses, you take some brass and you beat it into the shape of the thing that is killing my people. And you take that serpent and you put it on a pole and you lift it up and you tell all the people that if you'll look, you'll live. And then Jesus makes a comparison that is stunning and shocking, and astounding. Here's what he says. I am going to be lifted up on a tree just like the brazen serpent was lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't miss that. Jesus just said, I'm going to be made into the shape of sin. I'm going to be made into the shape of what's troubled humanity. I'm going to take all that sin on me. And when I am lifted up, there's going to be enough power in that sacrifice that it can forever break any bondage. It can forever shatter any addiction. There's going to be enough power in that sacrifice. That whosoever will can have everlasting life. The Bible is not just God's story. The Bible is our story. The Bible is the story of a long and winding road of great love. A great love that was irreparably damaged and then miraculously recovered. The Bible is the story of children who would not listen and a father who would not give up. That's your Bible. Because God is a father unlike any father you've ever heard about. Pastor Urshan, would you come help me just for a moment? You see, the devil, he's so crafty. He thought he had created... Just stand right here for me, my friend. He thought he had created... An insurmountable dilemma for God. Because in the Garden of Eden, he launched a preemptive strike. He said, I'm going to mess up God's creation. I'm going to mess up mankind. And so the devil tempted Adam and Eve, and you know the story. They sinned. You see, as long as sin was over here and man was over there, everything was fine in God's universe. Because God could hate what he hated and he could love what he loved. He could fellowship with man and he could stay away from sin because God cannot fellowship with sin. But the devil thought, he's so cruel. He doesn't play by any set of rules you can name. He'll do anything. He'll cheat and lie and steal and hurt and maim just to get you messed up. The devil is not your friend. I don't care what the advertisements say. He doesn't have anything good in mind for you. And so the devil, he succeeded in getting Adam and Eve to sin. And when Adam and Eve sinned, The devil created what seemed to be an insurmountable dilemma. As long as what God hated was over here and what God loved was over there, it was fine. Everything was good. God could hate what he hated and love what he loved. But when what God hated got inside of what God loved, now there's a conflict. It almost derailed all of creation. Because now, For God to hate what he hated, he would have to hate what he loved. And for God to love what he loved, he'd have to love what he hated. And the devil stood back with a smug, arrogant sneer and said, There, God, your greatest, highest pinnacle of creation. I have ruined it. I've wrecked it. It's irreparable. It cannot be fixed. It was Satan's triumph, his great moment, because the devil said, what are you going to do about that, God? Something has to die. And up in heaven, God said, yeah, something has to die. You see, because of the choice of his children, if sin was to die, they had to die. That, brothers and sisters, was the dilemma that almost derailed creation. But the devil had not counted on the absolute genius of the architect of all existence. He had not counted on God. Because before he ever made that cunning move, God already had a plan. It was the preemptive move that trumped the devil's preemptive move. Because God had in mind a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Don't you dare miss the genius of God's plan. God stands over here in His perfection and He can't help us because He's perfect and sinless. And man is over there in His imperfection and man certainly can't help us because He's imperfect and He's sinful. So God did what only God could do. God took on a body of flesh so he could do what Abraham had prophesied God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Apostolic people, don't you ever back up from apostolic doctrine. Because God did not love us enough to send somebody else to fix the problem. God loved you so much, He came to His creation Himself. He robed Himself in flesh. He took on a human nature He had never had. So one day you could take on a divine nature that you had never had. And so Jesus came, and he who knew no sin became sin, so that we who knew no righteousness could become righteous. I read it this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Here's what could fix it. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What happened at Calvary was not the end of a sad story with a martyr hanging on a cross in agony. What happened at Calvary was the triumphant chapter The conclusion of a love story. Children gone wrong and a father who loved them so much. He came in flesh and on the cross he shut down the power of sin. He ripped it up. He threw it away. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. All things are become new. Thank you. It is not the position of the apostolic church that we're all sinners just struggling to be religious. It's not the position of the apostolic church that we're all just putting on nice Sunday clothes and covering up all the junk that we deal with all week. No, that's not our position. Our position is this, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. I'm not wanting to be free. I am free. I'm not wanting to have eternal life. I do have eternal life. I wish somebody just lift your voice and thank Jesus for the freedom He's given you. If you're a second or third or fourth generation apostolic, you might not have had the dramatic conversion. You might have grown up on church views. But let me tell you, there came a moment when God intersected your family tree with the gospel and you owe him a debt of thanks. Oh my. I love you, Jesus. You can be seated. The incarnation, folks, was pure genius. Because after they mocked and tortured and killed and buried him, in three days Jesus came out of the grave. Only the God-man could do that. It was the lifting up of the brazen serpent in the wilderness that was the antidote to death. And it is the lifting up of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary That is the antidote to sin. That's why Jesus did not and could not die at the whipping post. He did not and could not die in Pilate's judgment hall. He had to go to the cross to be lifted up. Only God could accomplish that feat. Jesus alluded to it when he talked to Nicodemus. It must have shocked that Jewish scholar and lover of the law. Because here's what Jesus Did Here's what He was saying. I'm going to become sin without ever having been a sinner. Do you understand how much Jesus did for you on the cross? He became the adultery without ever having been an adulterer. He became the lie without ever having been a liar. He became every hideous, vile, filthy, perverted sin It all got poured out, and He took it willingly on Himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The brass serpent looked like sin on Himself, but it had no venom. (laughs) Jesus took sin on Himself. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, but He was without sin. That serpent was hideous to look on. The Bible says Jesus was despised and rejected. That's what He did for us. But we know from Israel that no matter how far gone you were, no matter how many hours it had been since the venom of the serpent had penetrated your skin and started coursing through your bloodstream, it didn't matter how much damage the venom had done. If you could look to that serpent lifted up, all the effect of that venom could be erased. Let me tell you something about this, Jesus. I don't care how bad they have messed up. I don't care how bad you have messed up. If you can just get to the cross, if you can just get to Calvary, there's enough power in the blood of Jesus to cleanse every sin, every perversion, every addiction, every bondage. There's enough power in the blood of Jesus to do that. There is no depth of sin that God's love cannot reach down and pull you out and set you free. But I got to tell you, there was only one serpent for the entire camp. Three million people. It would have been a lot more convenient to have three serpents or ten serpents or 50 serpents. But there was only one brazen serpent. And there is only one name. Given under heaven among men whereby we... Must be saved. And that's all beautiful. And your pastors and your teachers and the theologians, they could spend hours detailing all the shadows and types of that event. But the most astounding thing to me is this in the wilderness, that serpent was lifted up and became a savior. But at Calvary, the savior was lifted up and became like a serpent. That's the amazing thing. That's why the earth quaked and the sun refused to shine. Because creation had never seen that much sin in one place at one time. In the Old Testament, you walked into the tabernacle and an innocent lamb took the guilt of a man, a guilty man. His sins were confessed. At Calvary, that's what happened. An innocent lamb took the guilt of man so that a guilty man could take on the innocence of the lamb. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, it worked the same in ancient Israel as it does today in your country. You can't try a man and punish him twice for the same crime once you've executed judgment on him. I am not standing here tonight in this service because I'm good enough to be here, righteous enough to deserve to be here, holy enough to be uh, deserving of being here. I'm standing here because Jesus took my punishment and my sin. He became sin. He became my sin. He took my judgment on himself. (laughs) So God won't judge me. Not because I don't deserve it, but because he already took it 2,000 years ago. Almost finished. I think you probably know this. You've read it. You've heard a pastor preach about it. You you know that if you're bitten by a poisonous snake and that venom gets in your bloodstream, you know that the only thing that can save you is anti-venom. And you know what anti-venom is made from. Anti-venom is made by taking that poisonous snake's venom, placing it in an animal's bloodstream, and then letting the animal's blood form antibodies that can neutralize the effects of the venom. And you may have heard which animal's blood works best to make antibodies. It was the blood of the lamb that neutralized the power of sin. Now, the devil's never given up on this battle. He's still trying to fight. He's still trying to convince you that you are a victim of your circumstances and you can't get over it and you can't get by it and you're always going to be like that. I stand against that lie from hell because the blood of the Lamb has neutralized the effects of sin in your life. You don't have to do that. You don't have to take that. You don't have to be that anymore. And so Jesus said in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But he said that again in a different way in John 12. He said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. You lift me up and I'll do the drawing. You lift me up and I'll do the work. You lift me up and I'll do the delivering. We have taken upon ourselves a load that we were never meant to bear. We can't save anybody. We can't heal anybody. We can't deliver anybody. We can't counsel anybody enough to reverse the effects of sin in their life. But if we lift Him up, He'll do the drawing. He'll do the delivering. He'll do the healing. Oh my... There was no virtue in that old pole that lifted up that brazen serpent. The only virtue in the pole, if it had any, was this. The higher it was, the higher the serpent got lifted up. There's no special virtue in what we do. There are all kinds of groups that get together and sing, that get together and play instruments. There are all kinds of groups that have fellowship kinds of things, even if they don't call it that. There are all kinds of groups where people gather and somebody stands behind a podium like this and addresses an audience. That's not what makes us special. There's only one virtue in the apostolic church and it's this. The The higher we can lift him, the more he can do. The higher we can lift him, the more he can be seen. The higher we can lift him, the more our community can be changed. The higher... So if you're going to praise him, praise him high. If you're going to love him, love him high. If you're going to lift him, lift him high. If you're going to worship him, worship him high. Lift him up, and he'll do the drawing. Your job is not to figure out the answer to everybody's problem. Your job, if He's lifted in your lift lifted high. If He's lifted in your testimony, if He's lifted in your witness, if He's lifted in your life and your worship and your praise, He'll do the drawing. I love you. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. I wish you would take advantage of this moment. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. But your hands are not the center of spiritual warfare in your life. Your mouth is. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So would you lift your voice up high? when you lift him healing is released when you lift him deliverance is released when you lift him his power walks into a room oh yes Jesus yes Jesus the only thing that would make that better is if you would take somebody's hand and lift it with yours and together choirs of uplifted hands and voices would you just lift Jesus up right now Just lift Jesus up right now. Just lift Jesus up. When you do the lifting, he'll do the drawing. When you do the lifting, he'll do the drawing. Weary pastor, stressed out prayer warrior, worried grandmother, if you'll do the lifting, he'll do the drawing job isn't to draw. Your job is to lift him. Arroko yabasiasa Surababako yabaha Yes. And that should be the end of the story and the end of the sermon. Should be. That powerful story recorded in Numbers should have been the end of the brazen serpent. But there's this weird little footnote in Israel's history. The brazen serpent doesn't get mentioned for over seven centuries until we find incense being burned to it in the time of Hezekiah. Israel, the one God people, they're now worshiping a piece of brass. They're worshiping something God once used, and they've turned it into an idol. But thankfully, there's a 25-year-old king who takes immediate action. And here's what he does. 2 Kings 18 and 4. Hezekiah removed the high places, and he broke the images, and he cut down the groves, and he broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, which means that's just an old piece of brass. That's what that means. We have a wonderful privilege, brothers and sisters. We stand on the shoulders of giants of apostolic doctrine and experience, power, leadership, and legacy. And they have brought us, they prayed us into existence. They prayed the price so that we could be here. And they passed us a message. God forbid that we would ever turn the message and the treasure and the power into an old idol. That we sit around and we're content to worship what God once did instead of seeing the reality of what God wants to do. I'm not taking a cheap shot. I'm including myself in this. I've got wonderful elders and I've got a precious legacy and heritage, and so do the people in this area. But God forbid that we would ever just be content to come to church, send up a little incense to something that we know about, and it's a beautiful story, and it's a precious thing, and we send up a little bit of incense, and then we go home unchanged week after week after week after endless week. God saved you to do more than come into a building and sit on a pew and cheer on your pastor. God saved you so you could lift Him up. I wonder if there's somebody in this place that you'd just like to break up all those dusty old images of what you think God can do because God can do exceeding abundantly above all you are able to ask or even think. God is more capable of the miraculous than what you've heard. I know you've heard some good praise reports but don't be one of those people that's like a Pentecostal museum tour guide. This is what Jesus did 40 years ago. And this is what Jesus did for these elders that are passed away. And here's the glass case we put up to remember what God did back in so-and-so's life. And here's what we we want to just take you by and let you see it and let you remember it. I do not want to be a tour guide for my own history and my own legacy. Every once in a while, we just need to break up some dusty old images and we need to renew our dedication and our love for this truth and this message and this power thank you sir I wonder if there's a 25 year old like Hezekiah that would say I want a fresh fire and a fresh word and a fresh passion in my generation I wonder if there's an elder that you're not near done yet I want to just shake up something in this church in my generation the power of Calvary works But you gotta let it work. The power of the blood works, but you gotta let it work. The Holy Ghost works, but you gotta let it work. And the greatest way I know to let it work is to lift Him up. Would you step out of where you're standing right now? I know we can't get everybody in the altar, but let's get as many as we can in the altar. Would you step out of where you're standing and head this way right now? Everybody that can, everybody that will. I want you to just step into this altar. When you get here, come as far front and as far center as you can. Let's make room for everybody to get out of the aisles. Up. We got a second. We're okay. Just let people get into position. If you're already here and you can't, take a step forward. Let people come out of the aisles. Now, I'd like you to lay your hand on somebody's shoulder right now. Brother to brother, sister to sister, family with family. I want you to just begin to pray. Because when Jesus gets lifted up, Just do what you do. Don't just do your little routine. Don't just do your little Pentecostal thing. When you lift him up. When you lift him up. He'll draw. He'll heal. He'll deliver. Bust up your dusty old image of what you think He's capable of. And let God be God. Let God be God.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church,